0: To Leonard Lopate at large, I'm Leonard Lopate. Michael Zweig's new book from PM Press, *Class, Race, and Gender: Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism*, is a look into what's driving many of today's most urgent and troubling problems: the the origins of the inequalities of income, wealth, and power, environmental devastation, militarism, racism, and white supremacy patriarchy and male chauvinism, periodic economic crises, and the cultural conflicts in our country. Michael Zweig, who's been an activist, educator, and organizer over the past six decades, is an emeritus professor of economics and founding director of the Center for Study of Working Class Life at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, and he joins us now. Welcome to our show.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Good to be with you.
0: You open your book by stating that it's, quote, for anyone interested in learning about thinking more deeply about or engaging in progressive politics. But don't recent polls suggest that that's a dwindling audience?
1: I think quite the opposite. I think uh, there's a growing audience, particularly among young people Mm. in uh, the activism that they demonstrate in uh, issues of uh, Black Lives Matter, issues of environmental justice and issues of uh, gender equality. All kinds of movements are going on. We have the uh, very important upsurge in labor activity and union strikes I think there's a lot going on and there's a lot new and a lot of younger people who are coming into these struggles that are looking for things to read and looking for things to uh, help Mm -hmm. them get their bearings in the society in which uh, they're struggling. And I think that this book, I'm hoping, will be a good resource for study groups Mm -hmm. and for individuals and for classrooms where people are trying to think about these uh, deeper questions of why we have these problems and how do we root them out at their source.
0: And the underlying connections among today's social justice movements?
1: Well, I think that the underlying connection is that they all grow out of the way capitalism works. Mm -hmm. And they all grow out of uh, the power relationship. Uh, You know, if we talk about class, uh, often in this country, we talk about uh, income or wealth, uh, education. I think those are markers of class, but they're not the source. I think the basic foundation of class in this country is a power relationship where you have a working class, which is the large majority of the American uh, workforce and population. That working class basically has very little control over the uh, content of the work, the pace of the work. Uh, they are just uh, going to work every day, doing their job, going home or going off to another job. And uh, they that relative degree of powerlessness Mm -hmm. is uh, matched by the power that uh, capital has, the power that the corporate elite has to organize that work and to give direction to that work. So when we talk about class or when I talk about class in this country, I'm talking about that power relationship between uh, the capitalist class or the corporate elite uh, that controls the economy, And the working class that does the work in that economy.
0: But don't over 60% of Americans belong to the working class, although you say that's one of our country's best-kept secrets? Yeah. Do do many of the people in the working class see themselves as middle class?
1: Well, I think it's a mixed bag. If you ask people uh, in surveys, what class are you, upper, middle, or lower, almost everybody says they're in the middle class. Hmm you know, who wants to be in the lower class and who thinks that they're they're really in the upper class? So if you put it that way, most people will say they're in the middle class. But if you put working class into the mix and you say, what class are you? Upper class, uh, middle class, working class, lower class, something like 35 or 40% of the population puts themselves into the working class right now. So I think that there is a, a really sizable... fraction of the population that already identifies itself as working class, if that's given as an option. Now, what to do with that and how to uh, build uh, social movements, how to build power out of that identification, that's something which uh, this book is trying to explore.
0: You say you've committed your life to progressive politics, but doesn't your definition of progressive politics differ somewhat from the textbook definition?
1: Well, you know, I'm not all that familiar with all the different various textbook definitions. Uh, my definition of progressive is fairly straightforward. It just means anything that alleviates suffering. Hmm. That's progressive. Anything that increases the uh, intellectual capacity, the organizational capacity, the cultural capacity of working people, that's progressive. And uh, I'll stick. I'll stick with that. And uh, anything that goes in the opposite direction, I'd say, is not progressive.
0: Well, where does party politics come into this? Although we tend to think of the Democrats as the party of progressive politics, haven't many of its representatives become less supportive of workers' concerns?
1: Well, yes. And I think that has its origins in, again, this tremendously intense class struggle or a battle of class forces in the U.S. over the last 50, 60 years in which the working class has systematically been uh, reduced in its power and the uh, corporate elite and the capitalist class has systematically consolidated more and more power. And part of that process, which has taken place in every aspect of society, Part of that process includes the political process. So if you go back to the Clinton administration in the 1990s and uh, the so-called Third Way and the uh, so-called New Democrats, it was a policy that essentially and even explicitly turned its back on working people and began to embrace uh the corporate elites and the financial elites the people who are coming up in uh, the leadership of the internet revolution in in the technical world and then the uh, money that those sectors could bring into the democratic party coffers and so you had you know the end of welfare as we know it which was a strong very strong attack on working people in this country lower income working people You had the uh, deregulation of the economy that was a boon for the uh, uh, financial and corporate elite in this country until we had the catastrophe of the economic collapse in 2008, 2009, and then other collapses uh, and difficulties since then. So, yes, the Democratic Party used to be what was thought of as the party of the working man or the party of the working class. But it's long since turned its back. And I think we see that uh, even uh, now, Uh, even though uh, Joe Biden wants to, you know, present himself as the, uh, you know, the champion of working people,
0: he's,
1: he's still talking about workers are the middle class. Well, workers are the working class. And I think that even talking about working people as the middle class and unions built the middle class strips the working class of its authority of its of its even ex, its existence so i think that you know when we talk about electoral politics i think it's important to put electoral politics in the context of this class this divisions in the, in the society so the political apparatus can be thought of not only as an electoral question, but also a movement-building question, because politics is also undertaken by social movements hmm. and by the attempts to crush or marginalize or dismantle those
0: movements. Well, hasn't these fluctuations often been the case? The, the reason the Progressive <clears throat> Party was formed in the mid-20th century and then the Labor Party in the late 1990s, they came and they went. You were involved in the Labor Party. What happened to it?
1: Well, I think what happened to the Labor Party, which was founded in uh, 1996, at a convention of 1,400 workers from dozens and dozens of unions, including my own, to uh, American Federation of Teachers, local uh, 2190. We had 14 people at that convention from the union, an official delegation. But what happened was that the labor movement in this country is so closely tied to the Democratic Party is so closely involved with figuring out who should be the candidates and where the money should go and contributing millions and millions and tens of millions of dollars to the Democratic Party across the country it was basically impossible to bring the labor movement out of that orbit and into this new labor party that we were trying to build and a labor party that doesn't have the labor movement and doesn't have the, pow- the, the power and strength of working people mobilized on behalf of working people explicitly. If you don't have a labor woman doing that, you can't have a labor party, and that's what happened. It, it well, basically disintegrated.
0: Well, labor has different concerns in different parts of the country. The reason Joe Manchin uh, is a Democrat, and so, and well, Bernie Sanders is not. He's listed as an independent, but there are a few other members of the Democratic Party. The who are so-called progressives, aren't there?
1: Well, yes, there are. And, and, and they represent
0: it, different kinds of states than the one Manchin represented.
1: Well, see, I think that it, that's true, but they represent different interests. And I think rather than thinking about it as geography, I think it, it's more appropriate to think about it as the interest. Joe Manchin represents the coal operators. Mm-hmm. Well, Joe Manchin geography. represents—
0: Well, in my mind, anyway, it's where the the coal is because there isn't any coal in New York City. So we don't have that kind of representative here.
1: But there is a working class in Virginia and West Virginia that uh, I think has an interest that goes beyond coal Mm -hmm. and the way in which uh, the conservative or pro-business wing of the Democratic Party plays its cards is also to sabotage not only environmental legislation, but all kinds of legislation that increases the political capacity, the cultural and and, uh, organizational capacity of working people. Uh, And I think that we have to think about politics in terms of these interests of the working class and go into West Virginia and talk about why it is that there's so much poverty in West Virginia? Why it is that jobs are disappearing? Why it is that the new jobs that are being created are often out of reach to the people who are, who live there? Those are all questions that are appropriate to ask. And I think that the progressive part of the Democratic Party has a better answer for that. And we saw that in, in Bernie's campaign.
0: Although he, was, he's been called a socialist. And isn't socialism a dirty word And uh, to the majority of American voters,
1: well, it's less and less a dirty word. I think that what Bernie was able to do, talking about democratic socialism, was to bring that term in, back into the American political consciousness, but as policy issues, Medicare for all, let's have union organizing being supported by the government instead of being uh, undermined by the uh, cons- by conservative. Uh, rulings in the national labor relations board let 's have uh, policies that bring racial justice that 's something that 's very much in the interests of working class people and that uh, white as well as black and I think that uh, what Bernie was doing in his campaign demonstrated that that message explicitly characterized as democratic socialism he didn 't hide that. That got a tremendous amount of support, and if the Democratic Party apparatus in in, in 2016 didn't stick its thumb on the deck, uh, on the scale and mm-hmm. very much disrupt the political uh, um, process by which uh, candidates were selected, I think Bernie might very well have been president and, and, and not uh, Donald Trump. Because Bernie was talking to working class people. He was talking to uh, minorities and, and um, black and Hispanic workers. And he got a lot of support. And, and he did that in the name of uh, democratic socialism.
0: Well, so I how does the there current definition of democratic socialism compare with the New Deal policies of FDR?
1: Well, they're not all that different. Bernie was uh, trying to bring forward policies that were in some ways better than what Roosevelt was doing because they were better on on issues of race, which, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in the New Deal famously, uh, as uh, Nelson Lichtenstein put it in his wonderful book, when affirmative action was white. Uh, the benefits of the New Deal were overwhelmingly channeled to white workers and deliberately blocked from access by uh, black workers. So I think that the kind of things that Bernie is talking about uh, were uh, in the New Deal mode, but uh, updated uh, to the kind of political environment that we live in today and the needs of the working class today that I think Bernie is in touch with.
0: Well, didn't some capitalists call FDR a traitor to his class? So this, this, this debate has been going on for a while now. And it FDR, has indeed. FDR, well, he did come out of the upper class.
1: Yeah. Well, he was a traitor to their class in a certain kind of narrow and, and uh, immediate kind of a way. But in 1936, when he was campaigning for re-election, his first re-election, he actually got up and publicly said, yes, they hate me and I welcome Hmm. their hatred. (laughs) Uh, You know, well, that's pretty good. And I think that uh, what we need is to understand that any profound transformation or reform in the capitalist system requires a certain section of the ruling class to agree with it and want it to happen. And that's what Roosevelt represented. The civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s resulted in this uh, legislation in 1964, 65, 68, about voting rights and uh, housing rights and other elements of civil rights. All that happened in the context not only of a broad social movement, but a social movement that created the conditions in the international environment of the Cold War that a significant section of the ruling class in this country wanted those reforms and they got them. However, they didn't do away with racism because pretty soon thereafter, we got the Southern strategy of Nixon. We got the, so the new Jim Crow that uh, Michelle Alexander has identified. So we didn't get away with uh, from racism by those things. We didn't get away from class oppression in the new deal. What we got was some reforms, and some that were actually quite deep and quite profound. And those reforms then became the target of a ruling class that felt they didn't need them anymore, and they could go ahead and try to repress workers or repress black people, repress women. And we're living with that repression and that attempt to push all that back uh, today in American politics right now.
0: My guest on today's show is Michael Zweig, whose latest book is Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism, published by uh, PM Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and WBAI.org. Um The progressive movement was quite strong in the late 1960s and early 1970s. What happened then, and, and what led to What's happened since? Well- Is it a matter of social movements replacing political movements?
1: No, I think that what happened was a very instructive uh, uh, transformation of the political dynamics in the country in 1971. And I tell this story in in, uh, this book about the Powell Memorandum uh, for Lewis Powell who uh, was then appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court by President Nixon. But when the memorandum in
0: 1971,
1: that's right. The Mm -hmm. Powell Memorandum, which was written to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Mm -hmm. Now, for young people today, it's hard to imagine how it is that capital and capitalism as a system was so much on the defensive and so much in bad odor in this country in the 1960s, in early 1970s. But in every element of society, in the church pulpits, in the political process, in schools and universities, in publications, in magazines, in newspapers, uh, in every aspect of, of uh, popular culture, capitalism was on the run. Capitalism was very much on the defensive as these social movements Uh, rose to challenge capitalism for power, remembering that power is the basis of clash. So Powell wrote this memorandum to the Chamber of Commerce, and he said, we have to do something about this attack that we're facing on all fronts. And he itemized all the fronts that capitalism was reeling uh, in their uh, attacks. And Powell said, we have to respond to this, but not as the auto industry looking out for its own industry, uh, for its own interests, and the agricultural industry looking out for its own interests. We have to respond to this as a class for the system. We have now to defend not only our industries, not only our businesses, but we have to defend the system. And we have to all contribute to that process so that we can push back this challenge to the system that we're seeing. And in fact, in the 1970s, the ruling class in this country did just that. Hmm. That's when you got the Federalist Society, which uh, recently has put all these people on the Supreme Court to turn Roe back. You have, and incidentally, not just Roe, but to enhance corporate interests in a hundred different ways. You have the uh, Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, the American Legislative Exchange Council, all these uh, and many more were created in the 1970s as a consequence of the Powell Memorandum, and so, then within all, all the churches, within all the religious establishments, there was this there was an attack on sort of progressive thinking about poverty and uh, the, the, the preferential option for the poor as the Catholic Church in Liberation Theology proposed it, and so you had this very systematic. Uh, attempt to strip hmm. working people and all other uh, associated people allied people and people of color in this country and it was very successful over time and in the consequence of that we have this very great increase in income distribution uh inequality very great increase in the inequality of wealth. And that comes with a very great inequality in the allocation and distribution of power in this country. And that comes back to class as a question of power.
0: Because you say that the rich are not the ones the working class needs to confront. That's right. I I think,
1: you know, the the Occupy movement in 2011 had a very profound influence on the culture of this country. The Occupy movement was central in bringing forth this issue of inequality of income. The 99% and the 1%. That was the mantra of the day. And it's still you hear it. We're the 1%. No, they're the 1%. We're the 99%. Well, I went down to Zuccotti Park and I gave a little talk at the library. They had, you know, speakers come and I was one of them. And I asked people there to think about who is this 1% and who is this 99%. We're not just talking about percents of population. We're talking about who has the power to make life miserable for us? And who has the power to confront that? So if we're talking about the 1%, it isn't just rich. In New York City, if you're an anesthesiologist and you're married to a police officer or you're married to a a high school principal, you're making, in the top 1%, you're making more than $450,000 or half a million dollars a year in income. That's just a fact of income in these different occupations. I can tell you, I believe that the anesthesiologist and the high school principal is not the the target of our struggle. The target of our struggle are the people who run the major corporate entities in this country and the political apparatus that supports them. That's the target. And uh, if we're talking about trying to address the power of capital, sort of hidden by the 1%, we have to mobilize the power of the working people, of the working class with its allies altogether, way more than the majority of the people, the 99%. But I think instead of talking about 1% and 99%, it's more helpful and we can see more clearly what's involved if we talk about the corporate elite or the capitalist Mm -hmm. class on the one hand and the working class and its allies on the other.
0: Are you saying that capitalism as it currently works is responsible for many of today's uh, major problems like the origins of the inequalities of income, wealth and power, environmental devastation, militarism, racism, white supremacy, patriarchy, male chauvinism, periodic economic crises, the cultural conflicts that have divided our country? We're in a mess, aren't we? (laughs)
1: Well, we have a rich agenda of battle, that's for sure, (laughs) in many fronts. But I do think that all those things that you just mentioned have their origins in the way that capitalism is organized and the way in which capitalist power is implemented, and especially over the last 50, 60 years, uh, to bring forward an increase in power for capital and a reduction in power for working people and their allies. We see that all over the place. So let's take the question of environment, for example. Many, many uh, young people and older people too are very deeply involved in an environmental justice movement. And it has really two parts. One is just global warming and what are we gonna do about that? And then there's also the question of where, where are the effects of global warming and the effects of pollution more generally most deeply affected uh experienced and those effects are most deeply experienced among the poor and among working class people so the uh fact that we have global warming and all this pollution arises from the way capitalism is organized Mm. not only just for profit but for private profit and not only private profit but private profit based on pushing off to the public as many of the costs of doing business and as many of the costs of production as possible. And that's what businesses do. They can pollute, and it's very difficult to get them to pay for that. So they don't have to, and so they can produce more uh, than they ought to or more than they otherwise would if they had to take account of of those costs. And also, in capitalism, the environment, is seen not as an ecology but just as a series of po- possible inputs of, of things that you can just take or not take depending upon how you want to produce and how much those things cost but if you take water out of the ground to you get your crops in a in, in a, uh agribusiness that's that's part of an ecology that's not just water That's part of an ecology. If you cut down a whole bunch of trees to build uh, houses, you're changing the whole ecology of the planet if you do that at a broad enough scale. And over and over and over again, we see that uh, by just taking individual resources out of the uh, environment, out of the ecology, we transform that ecology for the worse. The same thing with putting things back in. You put a lot of carbon dioxide, a lot of methane into the air. Well, it's just carbon dioxide. It's just methane. Well, it's not just carbon dioxide. It's not just methane. It's global warming that results from that because of the way in which the whole planet's environment and atmosphere operates. So you can't just take one thing out or put one thing in without reference to the whole. And capitalism is based on Everything being taken out or put in only on the basis of the individual uh, calculation and the individual resource that you're taking out or putting in. And that way lies a very dysfunctional economy, a very dysfunctional productive system. So I would say if you're looking at uh, these environmental problems, Mm -hmm. you have to go to the root. That's what radical means. Radical doesn't mean you're crazy or you're off on the fringes someplace. Radical means you're going to the root of the problem. You're really looking deeply at what is driving these things. And in the book, I have a whole discussion of environmental issues and of uh, issues of race and issues of of, uh, economic uh, crises and uh, recessions, depressions.
0: And you provide specific examples from U.S. history from the first settlement of the New World to current life.
1: That's right, because... Has it been
0: a logical progression, or has it been a weird up-and-down one?
1: Well, it's logical in the sense that it is governed by how the the principles of how societies grow and how capitalism grows. It's not random. Now, is it up-and-down? Yes, it is up-and-down, because uh, we know that... Processes of change are not just consistently step by step by step. Every once in a while, there's a there's a jump. You have quantitative changes and then you have a big leap or change or that goes, takes things off in a, in a break. That happens. It happens because that's how things work, not just in society, but in nature and in every other aspect of, of life in the physical world. So we have a long history in this country, going all the way back to the 17th century, say on issues of race, Mm -hmm. where, again, because of the way the economy was organized at that time, with indentured labor being brought from England and from Africa, at first, not as slave labor, but as indentured labor. It wasn't until African and English labor rebelled together against English rule in the later part of the 17th century that the English imposed racial slavery, not just slavery, but racial slavery in order to separate out the African origin and the English origin workforce so that they wouldn't cooperate anymore.
0: But some states don't even want that to be taught.
1: Well, that's part of the struggle, isn't it? That's part of what is going on in this country today, further to consolidate the power of corporate elites, further to consolidate the power of the capitalist class. And you have people like Ron DeSantis and other people around the country who are implementing that politically. But if you look at what they're saying, it's not just, oh, we want to block this history. They also want to Get rid of the rights of worker, public sector workers to organize unions. Mm-hmm. They also want to have right to work laws. They also want to have laws that uh, ban abortion uh, and health care for, uh, for women and keep women from having control of their bodies. That's all of a piece. But the piece, all those pieces come out of the piece, which is corporate capitalism. And the capitalism that we have today in this country generates all these problems, and the, the, uh, to address those problems, we have to mobilize again and start again to build these social movements that can challenge the power of capital in every dimension of American life. And we are seeing signs of that. In, uh, you know, on the campuses, we're seeing signs of that in the labor movement, in the Black Lives Matter movement, in women's movements, in uh, the environmental movement, environmental justice movement, all those things. And this book, I'm hoping, will help the activists in all those arenas to have a better sense of what's going on and what is driving these things so that we aren't just dealing at the surface, but we really do get to the root of the problem. And in that sense, it's a radical book.
0: You're listening to London low at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Michael Zweig. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212 209 during today's show We'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give, and remember to, wbai.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of London, Loped at Large. We thank you very much and return now to Michael's wife, who is, boy, this is a, a long list of accomplishments. Emeritus Professor of Economics and Founding Director of the Center for Study of Working-Class Life at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. Um, The uh, Sony Chancellor's Award for Excellence in Teaching. His books include Religion and Economic Justice, The Working-Class Majority, America's Best-Kept Secret, and What's Class Got to Do With It?, American Society in the 21st Century. And from 2005 to 2006, he served as an executive producer of the documentary Meaning Face to Face, the iraqus labor solidarity tour. In 2009, he wrote, produced, and directed the film Why We Are in Afghanistan, which won the Working Class Studies Association Studs Terkel Award for Media and Journalism. And in 2014, he received their award, for Lifetime Contributions in the Field of Working Class Studies. Have I left anything out, Professor Zweig?
1: Well, you know, I live in New York City and out on the east end of Long Island, uh, out in South Old Town, where I've been a uh, volunteer in the South Old Fire Department for over 30 years. And that's another aspect of life that I think is important to uh, uh, be involved in. And I encourage people where they are, if they're in a District where they only have volunteer fire departments, please uh, join up. Uh, we need your help.
0: Now, your book has a foreword from Reverend William J. Barber II. Why him?
1: Reverend Barber, I think, is, uh, is one of the leading and most profound uh, uh, spokesmen or leaders for uh, economic and social and racial justice and, and gender justice in this country. Uh, Reverend Barber uh, was uh, in North Carolina in 2013 and developed there the uh, Moral Monday Movement, which brought to the state capitol in Raleigh uh, weekly demonstrations to protest the uh, injustices that the North Carolina legislature was imposing. Uh, again, as part of this long march of uh, from the uh, Powell Memorandum, and resistance to it. And when I first heard about these Moral Monday movements, I went down there uh, to North Carolina. I met with, uh, and met uh, Reverend Barber, uh, took a training from him, participated in those things. And then Reverend Barber with Reverend Liz Theoharis from the Cairo Center here in New York at the uh, Union Theological Seminary, uh, thought uh, that it would be important to revive uh, the um, Poor People's Campaign that Reverend Martin Luther King began to initiate in 1968, um, but he was assassinated that year and it really uh, fell apart after his assassination. So, Reverend Barber and Reverend Theo Harris and others, uh, myself included, uh, were involved in recreating that Poor People's Campaign. And uh, it is liberation
0: theology.
1: Well, that's part of it, because it's the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, which uh, involves not only policy issues, but investigating what are the ethical norms that are necessary to guide those policies and to challenge the so-called morality of who do you sleep with Mm -hmm. as the basis for making political decisions, which is just a total snare and delusion and what we're trying to talk about in the Poor People's Campaign is a, a, a set of values and norms that uh, champion mutual mutual care, mutual uh, aid, uh, concern for one another, uh, concern for the poor, and uh, implementing policies that alleviate suffering rather than uh, finding excuses for doubling down on suffering.
0: Well, go ahead. I'm
1: sorry. So, I, uh, you know, uh, when I was working on this book and thinking about it, uh, PM uh, Press uh, asked me, well, who do you think might write a forward for it? And I thought, well, let me ask Reverend Barber. And he read the book and he thought it was good and thought it was useful as a resource and uh, wrote the forward for it. And I'm very appreciative of that.
0: Well, although every major religious tradition has considered the alleviation of poverty to be uh, a major moral consideration, haven't some current religious leaders aligned themselves with the practices of the ruling class? How do you account for that? Well,
1: because, you know, it's, again, a question of power. And if you have a a church—I remember in 1986, the Catholic Church in this country, uh, the bishops— put out a, uh, not exactly what you call it, but a statement on the economy. And that statement was a social democratic statement because it emphasized the needs of the poor. It emphasized the needs of working people. It put working people over, uh, the interests of working people over the interests of capital. And that it called on capital to pay close attention to and to further the interests of ordinary working people and to deal with poverty. Well, at that time, again, as part of this onslaught from uh, the corporate elite, a letter went out to all the different uh, churches in in the Catholic churches in this country from right-wing Catholics who pointed out to the priests and to the bishops, think about where your money comes from if you want to fix your roof. Think about where your money comes from if you need new vestments we provide that money don't be sucked into this uh, new bishops letter which is taking you off in the wrong direction and is going to make us uh, doubt your sincerity as to the principles that you're operating under it was a very explicit attack and we have seen it all up and down the catholic hierarchy and we see it in the jewish community and the muslim community we see it everywhere in every religious uh, tradition because those traditions are themselves divided by class differences. Hmm. And uh, so you have a kind of working class and uh, uh, set of ethics and values that then find in their religious writings what they need or what they find as the foundation for their policy proposals. So Reverend Barbara likes to say, you can look in the Bible and you'll find five or seven different references to homosexuality. Uh, you'll find two thousand references to alleviating poverty. Mm. Why do we have a tr- uh, you know church uh, apparatus that in some places wants to just champion those five passages about homosexuality and ignore the two thousand ch- se- uh, sections that have to do with poverty? Let's reverse that. And so that's a bad, that's a struggle. That's a struggle that goes on in every church tradition. And you know, as uh, Bob Dylan. Uh, saying once in, uh, in, in one of his gospel albums, you got to serve somebody. Hmm. And so if you're a religious leader or a political leader or an academic writing, who are you serving?
0: And you know, that's a the problem. And that's a question.
1: That, yeah, well, I'm talking specifically about this question of who do you serve? you got to serve somebody. And how you make that decision and who you put your uh, life's work uh, you know, on behalf of, well, that's a moral decision. But people also sometimes do it because corporate money buys you a, a nice life, and so let's let's have that.
0: Michael's and, Mike uh, is my guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large. His latest book, Class, Race, and Gender, uh, challenging the injuries and. Divisions of Capitalism, published by PM Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Not just religion, although the interests of labor and capital are often opposed to each other, hasn't almost all union leadership in the United States tied itself to a defense of capitalism?
1: Well, it depends what period of time in American history you're talking about.
0: Well, right now, we have been hit by a a slew of strikes in many different industries. Was that just coincidental?
1: I don't think so. I think that what happened was the labor movement uh, in the early part of the 20th century uh, got quite a lot of life to it in strikes and uh, uh, organizing across racial lines, across ethnic lines. That was done by the Wobblies, by the uh, industrial workers of the world. The IWW, affectionately known as the Wobblies. And they're still around uh, in an attenuated form. But what happened when they were organizing strikes in the Patterson Silk Mills in Patterson, New Jersey, or up in Lynn, Massachusetts, or out in the timberlands of uh, Washington State, the docks in in San Francisco, the corporate powers mobilized against them and crushed them, sent out the military uh, in, in in the year 1921. There was the famous Palmer Raids. Uh, 10,000 people were arrested who were labor activists and labor organizers. And that whole uh, class-conscious, militant, strike-oriented uh, section of the working class was basically put down. And it grew again in the late 1930s. With the growth of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO unions. And again, that was led by socialists and communists and class conscious organizers that went into workplaces across the country, industrial workplaces and agricultural workplaces to organize and were very successful. And then after World War II, they were so successful that, again, the corporate elite, in this case in 1947, through the Taft-Hartley Act, passed laws that said if you were a communist or had any communist affiliations, you were not allowed to be um, a union officer. And if you were a union officer, you would lose your protection of federal law and the companies could just uh, disregard you altogether. So you had a period of of real Cold War uh, reconstruction of the labor movement in the 1950s, 1960s, 70s, where for the most part, the class conscious socialist, communist, social democratic leadership of the unions was stripped of their authority. And those unions were either crushed or marginalized in one way or another. And then you had a period of cooperation between labor and management, so-called labor management cooperation, you know, a social contract of cooperation, which was the cover for 50 years of crushing Hmm. defeats of labor and working people, again, following off that Powell memorandum. Are things like
0: Medicaid and food stamps endangered these days? Well, I think they are. I just saw an article that said— the current Medicare system is forcing physicians out.
1: Well, Medicaid is being there. Millions of people are being thrown off of Medicaid as we speak. Hmm. Millions of people, including children, are being thrown off of Medicaid and they're going to die. Poverty A- And the reason people.
0: is what? Just the money? reason
1: is, oh, we don't have any money. Hmm but we have a lot of money for the military. We have a lot of money for all kinds of things that are beneficial to uh, uh, industrial capital. We don't have adequate taxes on the rich. We don't have adequate taxes on corporate uh, activity. We don't have adequate taxes on capital gains income. Who gets that income? Well, that income goes to the corporate uh, elite and those who serve them. So I think that, again, What we're facing now is an intense battle, and it is literally, if we're talking about Medicaid, life and death. Mm. Now, in recent years, particularly in uh, the auto industry and the Teamsters, uh, the Food and Commercial Workers Union and others, there has been a resurgence of militants of, uh, okay, we're just not going to take this anymore. It's kind of the straw that broke the camel's back in the— uh, a COVID uh, experience. We're just not going to take it anymore. And so we're going to do things in a more militant, more class-conscious way. If you listen to Sean Fain, who's the president of the UAW, who led that auto strike, if you listen to what he said, in Warren, Michigan, when President uh, Biden went out there, President Biden was going on about how will unions build the middle class and the middle class is really so important to defend. Sean Fain gets up and says, this is a working class struggle and he's calling it out for what it is and not sort of mealy mouthing around about it. Now, it's good that President Biden was at that strike. It was good that President Biden cared enough about those auto workers to show up and help them win back some of what they gave up in 2009 when he was vice president mm-hmm. to um, save the auto industry and the financial crisis that was caused by the deregulation that President Clinton oversaw in 1999. So, yeah, it, it, the labor movement now is growing in its militants, growing in its agitation, and growing in its class consciousness. And I think that that is all to the good.
0: And it's also concerned about Artificial intelligence. Is that, well, that isn't in your book, but uh, that, uh, isn't that part of the current equation? Well,
1: technical change has been part of the equation in labor management relations from the beginning of capitalist uh, development. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what the uh, the uh, auto workers were able to do, and especially what the writers uh, and sag After were able to do, was to force their employers to negotiate over technical change. Now, that's a new thing. There's In American labor law in the private sector, there is a, a requirement that labor and management have to be, negotiate over wages. They have to negotiate over certain elements of working conditions and uh, grievance procedures, but they don't have to negotiate explicitly in the law. They do not have to negotiate. It is not mandatory to negotiate over technical development. Well, it's not mandatory, but can you, as a union and as a worker operating through a union, force management to negotiate about that? Well, yes, sometimes, no other times. In this case, yes, they were able to do that. And that was a very, very strong uh, part of their agreements, both in the auto industry about batteries and and uh, the development of electric vehicles, and in uh, the Writers' Union and SAG-AFTRA about the artificial intelligence and the use of uh, uh, electronic images and re- reuse of images, reuse of uh, texts. Those are all things that uh, they were able to negotiate, and uh, that's all to the good. That's an indication, again, of the redistribution of power that is maybe bubbling up in this country and what this book is trying to mm. highlight uh, in one way or another across the social movements that we experience.
0: Well, one of your chapters is headed, how do we know what we know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty important question. Uh you know uh, you have about I, two I think, minutes
0: to explain
1: well yeah i i think there's there's t- four things that i think are important as as uh points of departure for understanding social movements as society as a whole and the physical and the natural world too first the basic condition is change not stability second change happens uh, out of internal causes, internal pressures with, of, of what's changing, not from external sources. External sources operate only through internal mechanisms. And then those internal uh, uh, processes are driven by what are sometimes called contradictions, unities of opposites.
0: Yeah, well, and are we, are proce- we getting more and more divided? Can we forge alliances across class divides?
1: Oh yes. Oh yes. I think we can and we do. Uh, we see that with uh, teachers,, uh, uh, middle class uh, doctors uh, supporting their you know their nurses. We see all that in many, many different forms. But to come back to your other question about how do we know what we know, what's our belief system? We, you know, I believe certain things, what I like what I just got done uh, describing for how how things work. Well, other people might believe something else. So, so how do we test my belief against your belief? I think that there, the, the test is what works in the world, what best explains and predicts what will happen in the actual world outside of our minds. So we test the proposition not by what does it say in Karl Marx, or what does it say in the Bible, or what does it say in the cookbook. We uh, We test it by... Looking at practical experience. And if an idea implemented or a theory implemented uh, works out, well, that's a good sign. If it doesn't, then maybe it's wrong and you have to go back and look. Alas, we have run out of time.
0: Unfortunately, I've been speaking. Well, with I Michael really appreciate
1: Zweig. your time and the effort of uh, doing this uh, conversation. Well, uh, I really I glad appreciate that we it. could
0: go into it in depth, but even then, we run out of time. The book, Class, Race, and Gender: Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism, from PM Press. Michael Zweig, thank you so much for being on our show.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the discussion, and I hope that people will look at that book and uh, join in this uh, conversation.
0: And that does bring us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Kazai Glow, our executive producer, and to Reggie Johnson, our audio engineer, for all the important work they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one hour deep dive interviews, you can access m- m- uh, many of them streaming on demand at wbai.org. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlope at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support BAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And keep the station coming to you in general, because we're going through a rough time right now. All public radio stations are, but BAI, which relies 100% on listener support, is in a particularly... Tough bind, and we hope that if you have the means to do so, you can make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by calling 212 209 2950 or going online to give to wbai.org right now. And um, because we give you information you don't get anywhere else, and as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Linda at large right now. Can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, *Class, Race, and Gender: Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism* by Michael Zwie. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, of five, ten, fifteen, twenty dollars a month. It allows us to plan for the future. And we will send a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. Remember, we're the only station that relies 100% on our listeners. Your your contribution is tax-free. Please do what you can to help us keep going and doing this kind of radio. And have a great holiday.